There were times growing up in Oregon, I remember one time where we didn't see the sun for close to one month. It was locked in in fog like this. So you can be thankful you live in Colorado. So it's a great place to live. Everybody doing okay? All right. Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in seeing how you've touched our lives. Lord, have you touched the lives of those that made that public declaration of faith tonight. We pray that you would encourage them, that you would cause your spirit to fall upon them. And Lord, as we learn in your word tonight to be a people of honor, to honor you and showing that honor to the way that we treat people, we pray that your word would impact us, that it would transform us, that we would grow from it. We're so thankful for your hand to be upon our lives, for your hand to be upon this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. If your heart had been touched as you watched people get baptized tonight and you know Christ is your Savior and you're saying, I feel led to be baptized, you can come be baptized uh, tomorrow and meet us in the upper room at 8.30 or at 10.30, a half hour before those uh, two services. It's never too late to jump in and say, I'm ready to be baptized. Tonight we're going to be looking at being people of honor, and I'm always inspired by stories of honor. I read one this week of a man named Gene Irwin, and he fought in World War II, and he was on a a B-29, was the type of plane that he was on, and it was called the City of Los Angeles, so kind of a unique name for a bomber, and his bomber was the lead bomber that the other bombers would follow. And the first thing that they would do on their missions is they would drop a smoke bomb. And this smoke bomb would provide so that the other planes could get a bead on the lead plane and follow more effectively. This was his 18th mission. He was familiar with the routine and he dropped the, the smoke bomb. But something happened. The bomb exploded as it was being dropped in the hole and it came back up into the plane and he got severely burned and now the whole crew was in jeopardy their lives and he knew if he didn't take action if he wasn't a man of valor a man of honor that all of his friends his brothers would die so he chose to grab this bomb that was smoking put it between his rib cage and his arms and he carried it and he dropped it out of the hole of the plane he did survive had severe burns that he lived with the rest of his life but did go on to be married and have four children. And that's a very severe example of a person of honor. And what we're going to look at tonight may not be as tragic or as much of an exclamation point, but it's much more to do with daily life and how we honor one another. And if you're taking notes, there's four areas that we're to honor. First is to honor the family of God. Honor the family of God. And then it's honor widows honor our own household, and honor elders, honor spiritual leaders. I think that this is such an important topic in our world today. If there's something that our culture has lost, it seems to be of honor. And actually, one of our core values as a church is is that we want to be a movement of honor, meaning that we want to honor God and we want to honor people. I think it says a lot about our Christian character, our character as a person, when we learn to be a people of honor. So let's look in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, 
younger women as sisters with all purity. So this is point number one in this journey of being a person of honor, Rocky Mountain Calvary being a people of honor, is we're to honor one another. We're to honor the family of God. First is, younger should not rebuke an older man. That we should treat older men in the faith the way that we would treat a father. And you remember from last week's study, in chapter 4, Timothy's a young man. He's a young pastor, and he is to be exhorting. He is to exhort the family of God, but he wasn't to rebuke an older man. And this may seem old-fashioned, but if there's an older man in the faith than us, then we should approach them with the utmost respect, and we should not take on this demeanor of a rebuke, the way that maybe you would rebuke a child in love. You you can't go to an older man and put on this rebuke hat. You have to treat them with the utmost respect, and what does scripture say? Exhort him as a father. I have the utmost respect for my father, and I can't imagine rebuking him And if I ever think that I need to bring something to him, first, man, I pray extra hard. I go, is this really something that I would bring to my dad? And I can't think of anything off the top of my head where I've really had to do this. This is more of imagining, but if I did have to go to him, it would be very much gentle and very much to then exhort, to to come in humility. So remember that. That's how you are to treat an older man in the faith. And then how do you treat younger men? Well, you treat them as brothers. So depending upon your experience with your brothers, this could bring up a lot of stuff, right? (laughs) So one of the things that we have to understand with this text is we have to have a healthy understanding of family in order to relate to the family of God. And this is our relationship with one another because we have the same father, the same heavenly father. We're related by the blood of Jesus. So what are some ways that you would treat a younger brother? I'm a younger brother. I have an older brother, and he's my best friend. We're really close uh, to this day, and he had a great policy, and it was that he would beat me up, but he wouldn't allow anybody else to beat me up. You know what I'm saying? And when I think of an older brother, older brothers are protective. There's just something about it. There was one day recess we would always play football out at recess and this particular time when older kids started to pick on me a little bit I think tripped me during the football game I didn't really think too much of it and then it was time to go back into class and there's a vivid memory we're then in the hallway and this kid that was picking on me was getting a drink out of the drinking fountain and my brother just came up and slammed his head against the wall and let him know you stay away from my little brother you know and I'm like yeah this is awesome you know (laughs) And my brother is a little bit taller than me and about 60 pounds stronger. I, I didn't get his build, but I've got to tell you, I walked taller in high school because of my older brother, because I knew that he had my back. And that's what we should have of the younger men in the fellowship, is they should be our bros, they should be our brothers, and they should know that we protect them, that we're there for them, we're going to encourage them, we're going to challenge them. Older women, as mothers. You think about, again, this is a healthy perspective 
of family. So in a healthy family, how do you treat your mother? You treat your mother with honor and respect. And there's wisdom in treating your mom this way. And no mom is perfect, but you think about all of the sacrifices that a mom makes. And I'm seeing that more as I watch Amber, my wife, make so many tremendous sacrifices for our children. And as you're growing up, you don't really understand or appreciate all that your mom did. In doing a lot of memorial services here at our church at Rocky Mountain Calvary, I've seen a lot of big, strong men weep over the loss of their mom. You know, as they grow in their life, and their mom is elderly, and their mom passes away into eternity, there's something very special about a mom. And so the older women in our fellowship, we're to look at them as our moms, and we're to treat them with respect. We're to respect what they've done, we respect what they've accomplished, respect what they have to teach. And so as you encounter women that are older than you, this is the perspective you're to have of them. And then younger women as sisters with all purity. Now young men, maybe you're dating a young gal in the fellowship. The first way that you're to see her is as your sister in Christ. And you don't want to do anything to treat her in an impure way because she's the daughter of God and you're messing with the daughter of God. I also have a little sister, a younger sister. She's almost 10 years younger than me. And to this day... If someone hurt my sister, they may be taking a trip with me to Mexico. We'll just call it a missions trip <coughs> that they would never be coming back from, you know? My brother-in-law, he's a nice guy, and I like him now. They've been married for some time, but for the first two years, in the back of my head, I was thinking, are we going to need to go to Mexico? You know what I'm saying? Took me a while to, to warm up to them, and so that should be the perspective that we have of the younger women in the fellowship. If there's a gal that's younger, they're your sister in Christ. You're going to treat them with purity. I have a protection over my sister, but I also wouldn't want to do anything to intentionally hurt her. And that's the way that we should view the younger women. And so, men, we should be looking out for the women in our fellowship. If you're walking out to the parking lot and you see a, a gal that's walking out to her car as well, and maybe it's a, a, a lady that's older, what would you do for your mom? You know, if, if my mom was here, I would make sure that she got to her car safely, that her car started. And so you should do that for a woman in the fellowship. And, and just, you know, hey, can I walk you to your car and make sure that your, your car starts? You know, if a younger gal in the fellowship is walking out with the best intention of all purity, you're just going to keep an eye out. You're going to keep a watchful eye out and make sure that she gets to her car and make sure that her car starts. So this is honor. This all has to do with honor. And if we're honoring God, we're going to honor each other in this way. That's the connection point. And so, God, I love you. I want to serve you. And so I want to honor my brothers and sisters in Christ this way. This also works inside of our biological families because our husband, our wife, our children, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't they? And we should see them as such and Maybe you say, well, my spouse isn't saved or my children aren't saved. Well, you want them to be. <laughs> so even more so, the reason to treat them with honor so that they may come into the family of God. 
We go on to verse 3, and it's the second category that we're to honor. Honor widows who are really widows. So point number two is honor widows. And verse 3 brings up a question. It says, honor widows who are really widows? I, I thought it was pretty obvious to see who is really a widow. I mean, their husband has passed away, so they have to be a widow. What Paul is writing here about is a widow who is left alone that doesn't have any family to care for her. And if that's the case, then it's the church's responsibility, it's their joy and delight to care for that widow. But as we'll read, if the widow has children or grandchildren, that responsibility falls to them. God's heart is for the orphan and for the widow. As you read the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it's a reoccurring theme of God. In fact, he says that pure religion undefiled is to keep yourself unspotted from the world and to love to care for to visit widows and orphans in their time of need we can look at our lives spiritually you can look at a church spiritually and see how they're doing by how they care for widows so we're to honor widows first in our own family and also inside of this church if there is a widow that doesn't have her family to take care of her she's left alone doesn't have any children or or grandchildren then the church should rally around her verse four but if any widow has children or grandchildren let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents for this is good and acceptable before god so points two and three kind of blend together To honor widows is point two. And then point number three is honor our own households. Honor our own households. Because Paul's going to spend some time on this and saying that it's the grandchildren, it's the children that should learn to show piety. Piety is fidelity to natural obligations. Fidelity being faithfulness to natural obligations. It's natural from God's perspective that your parents took care of you. That your parents, well, let's just say it wiped your rear. You know, that's something that parents, did your parents do that? It happens to all of us, right? It's not very pleasant. Probably won't make it into Sunday morning service because that's Sunday morning. And and can't say that on Sunday morning. But it is Saturday night. So your parents did that for you. Not a very pleasant task to, to be able to do. Your parents made sure you had food, had clothes and education, gave you instruction, gave you discipline. And not all parents do it right. I mean, find one parent that's done it perfectly. None of us do it perfectly. But with that, then, we're to show piety to them. And this is scriptural. It's biblical. It says that we're to repay our parents for this is good and acceptable before God. This may be something that you're not aware of. This may be something that you're learning for the first time, that it's actually God's call upon us to take care of our parents and our grandparents. So if our parents don't have anywhere to go, if our parents are in a place where they're going to go out on the streets, for us as believers, we wouldn't let that happen. We'd say, you know what? I'm there for you. I'm going to care for you. You can come into my home. It only makes sense because, why? They took care of us when we were young, and now it's our turn to repay them. So you should marry wisely because you may be taking care of your in-laws as you grow. (laughs) We'll leave it at that right there. (laughs) Keep going. 
nope, I'll get in trouble. (laughs) Notice what it says at the end of verse 4. It's good and acceptable before God. So by honoring our household, we're honoring God. By taking care of parents and taking care of grandparents, we're honoring the Lord. It'll be interesting to see as society continues to get more secular and against God, what's going to be the attitude towards elderly? When elderly aren't cost effective. Already in my home state, in Oregon, that it's legal to have assisted suicide if you're terminally ill. So you've got a disease, and actually the state of Oregon will give taxpayers dollars to to kill you. And you can already see where those initiatives are going. Well, you're 90 years old. It costs this amount of money to fund you, to keep you alive, and so you're better off on a spreadsheet to, to be dead. And then as people get further and further away from God, they lose a biblical view of the sanctity of life. They don't care about the unborn. They don't care about the elderly. They don't care about the sick. They don't care about the crippled. And they say, you're, you're an expense. And see, we should stand out. It's acceptable to the Lord. It stands out in our culture and our society where we say, we're going to honor our parents. We're going to take care of them. Honoring our parents goes beyond just when we move out, out of the house. When we're 18 and we say, see you later, mom and dad. But it's being there for them in their older years. Verse 5, it says, Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. So a woman that doesn't have children and grandchildren, who has godly character, who trusts in God, who continues in prayer, this was to be a lady that the church would take on and say, we're going to care for you 100%. There would be many of these type of women that Timothy would be dealing with. And maybe the church's tendency was saying, well, we can't afford to care for these women. And Paul's saying, you need to honor these widows. You need to care for them. A woman that was like this is in Luke 2, 37. Her name's Anna. I'll read it to you. It says, and this woman was a widow of about 40 or 84 years, excuse me, who didn't depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. She gave her life over to prayer. It wasn't just any woman that was to be accepted into the church to be cared for in this way. It was a woman who was left alone, but also trusted in God and had godly character. In verse 6, but she who lives in pleasure is dead when she lives. Pleasure can also be interpreted as self-indulgent, So if you have a widow who's left alone, but she's given over to pleasure, she's given over to being self-indulgent, to a sinful lifestyle, then she wouldn't be one that the church would take on to take care of all of her her needs. Verse 7, and these things command that they may be blameless. Paul is actually really emphatic on this section of scripture. If you study the epistles, this is some of the strongest language that the apostle Paul says. He says to Timothy, you command this, that they would be blameless. If Paul were here and Timothy were here, they would say, there's no wiggle room on taking care of your parents. This is something to command. This is something that God would have us to do that would be good and acceptable in the sight. He would say for widows that are left alone, there's no wiggle room on this. There's no biblical way out of this. This is our responsibility. We honor God by doing these things. Verse 8, you can brace yourself for, you can go ahead and buckle up if you'd like. There might be a little bit of turbulence in the room with verse 8. But if anyone doesn't provide for his own household, and especially for those 
of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if he doesn't provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, again, some of the strongest language in all of the New Testament, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. So Paul would say, and ultimately the Holy Spirit, if we're over here tooting our horn that we have faith in Jesus Christ, that we're the follower of Jesus Christ, but we don't care for our own, meaning our spouse, our kids, our parents, even our grandparents, then we've denied the faith. Our actions don't line up with the faith and we're worse than an unbeliever. That even unbelievers do this. That even unbelievers care for their own household. Make sure that their kids have food to eat. Make sure that their parents have a place to come to if they're in a place of need. Now this is why it gets a little bit uncomfortable because and I think in a lot of senses we have a culture have lost sight of biblical manhood. We don't necessarily as a culture believe that God has given distinct roles to males and females. But men, if I could speak to you tonight is God has called you to be a provider for your wife and your kids. If our Wife and kids don't have food to eat or a roof over their head. It's ultimately our responsibility. Now, having said that, if someone's not physically able, that's a heartbreaking situation, and it's a whole nother thing as well, isn't it? There's also looking for work, and we know the economy is bad, and there's some that have looked for work for years even and haven't been able to find employment, but they're out faithfully looking. Those are different circumstances, but this verse does very strongly speak to a man who's able-bodied, who isn't willing to work, and looks to his wife and says, why don't you go do something about it? I'm going to stay home, and I'm not concerned about our bills. I'm not concerned about our financial needs. You take care of it. And part of what I believe God wants to do tonight, today, in our time, in our generation, is he wants to raise up godly men and godly women. So especially to you young men, as you're contemplating marriage, or maybe you're early on in your marriage, as you should understand that God's called you to be a provider. That's your responsibility and your role, and you should understand that you've got to get after it, and you've got to go to work. And you're saying, Eric, well, how do you know that? Look back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve fell, what did God give to Adam? He said, Adam, you're going to have to till the ground. There's going to be weeds. It's your responsibility to make sure that Eve is cared for. There's a certain expectation when marriage happens, when marriage takes place. I think women, when you get married, you understand you're you're hoping that your husband cares about the ultimate provision of the family. So if he doesn't care about the provision of the family, that's a betrayal to the family. I know this can be hard. I know that this can be difficult. But men, be encouraged. This is something that God has wired you with, that he's designed you with. And get after it and work hard. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be weeds until we go home to be with the Lord. But this is what God has given us to do. This is a way of honoring our own household. In fact, in context... We should be preparing to such a degree that if our parents or grandparents need to come live with us, we're prepared for that. That's what this verse is saying. That's how seriously we take provision and we go, you know what? 
This is some way that can be honoring and acceptable to the Lord. This doesn't even always have to be a ton of money, right? You know, parents, grandparents, it, it's, it doesn't have to be a ton of money. They simply need a roof over their head. They need love. They need care for. They, they need support and say, okay, I, I want to make sure that our family's in a place where we can open up our doors, that we can take care of our immediate family, but also our parents and our grandparents. It's important truth. It's important thing to understand. Verse 9, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Apparently, inside of the church of Ephesus, there was actually a group of widows that were cared for by the church that would then, in a sense, kind of be on the church staff. And they would begin to minister and care for and serve inside of the church. And Paul's saying to Timothy, don't take a woman in unless she's at least 60 years old and she's been the wife of one man. And the reason why she needs to be 60 years old is, verse 10, well reported for good works. If she's brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every work. So again, her character is examined before the church begins to provide for her and take care of all of her needs. I like what's mentioned. Reported for good works, has brought up children, She's lodged strangers, washed the saints' feet, relieved the afflicted. She's given her life to pour out to others. Verse 11, but refuse the younger widows, for when they've begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith. Now let me ask you this, if you'd participate with me. Humor me for just a second. How many of you have seen Sound of Music? Raise your hand. All right. Only half of you have seen Sound of Music, or two-thirds. So if you haven't, it's a good little family night. So we've got three daughters, so Sound of Music is fairly popular in our household. I could sing some of the songs for you tonight, but I will not uh, do that. I will spare you that humiliation on my part for you to have to listen to that. But if you're familiar with the movie and you're familiar with the story, you've got this guy who has a whole bunch of kids, his wife's died, so he's bringing in these nannies, right? And there happens also to be this young nun, and she's struggling as a nun, and she's always messing up, and so they send her to go and be the nanny for a while, and she falls in love with this guy who's lost his wife, and she realizes, I can't do the nun thing. The nun thing is not going to work for me. I have this desire to be married. And so that's what Paul is writing to. If a younger woman devotes her life to the work of the church, Paul's saying, don't do it until she's at least 60 because she may end up having this desire to be married. Then she's conflicted and she feels condemned because she'd made this commitment to set herself aside to Christ. Verse 13 And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from the house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. So these younger women, if they're accepted into this number that Paul's describing, they may have too much time on their hands. And when they have too much time on their hands, they're just wandering around, being gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not to do. 
If you're busy with good things, that can be something to be very thankful for. It's been said, and it's been said wisely, that idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? If you're sitting around with nothing to do, a lot of times we find ourselves getting into trouble and getting into sinful things. In verse 14, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak uh, reproachfully. So marriage is honorable, honorable. Paul's saying that his desire, what he sees to be best for these younger widows, is that they would go ahead and get remarried, that they'd bear children, that they would manage the household. And again, I know that this is not very culturally correct, but I want to be faithful to the word of God, because God here is calling out men to be providers, and he also mentions here women managing the household. And I do think that there is some innate God-given abilities among women to manage the household well. Men, you're the head of the household, but wives, you manage the household. You really make the household run. I can definitely relate to this. You know, yesterday morning, Amber needed to go to a doctor's appointment, so I had the kids in the morning, and man, that was the hardest thing I've done in months. I would go preach in the jungles of Africa. You know, I, you know, I, I would do anything. And, and I love my kids, and it was a joy to, to be there. But I got to tell you, I was running at my wit's end because I can only do one thing at a time. So I'm trying to focus on this one thing, and there's a thousand things that are, that are happening. And Amber came home from a couple hours at the doctor's, and I was like, babe, you are awesome. I don't know how in the world that you do this. And husbands, we watch our, our wives do it. And, and it's not that there's something wrong with us. I think that it works well the way that God has wired us, because we as men tend to finish the one thought that we started. And I, I think women, you can appreciate that, you know, that, he may only have one thought, but he's, he's going to finish it. But it just, it works so beautifully in the home. You know, I watch Amber be able to do like five or six different things at one time. And it's absolutely mind-blowing. And I can't even find the ketchup in the refrigerator. <laughs> like anybody seen the ketchup? Dad, it's right there in the drawer. Right there, the front door. It's right there. I've looked there. It's not there. Go back. Oh yeah, it's right there, in the exact place that you said it would. So, so why fight it? Why fight it? And again, inside of this, everybody's a little bit different and has personalities. But lady, there is, ladies, there is a God-given ability to manage the house, and it's a blessing. And I think it's the greatest job. It really is. And the culture doesn't value it, but God sure values it. In verse 15, for some have already turned aside after Satan. So as he's describing having this idle time and being a busybody, it's gotten the hold of some and they've turned aside. Verse 16, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. So Paul says it very clearly. If you have a widow in your family, you care for them so that that burden doesn't go upon the church. The church is to be caring for widows that don't have anyone left. Verse 17, we come to our fourth point tonight. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So the last category of people that we're to honor 
are elders. And this is speaking of the spiritual leaders inside of a church. It goes back to chapter 3 as we saw those biblical qualifications for elders. Now, who are the elders that you're supposed to honor? It's those who rule well, that they lead well, that they lead in a way that's God-honoring. Not according to the world, but according to Christ and Christ's standard and Christ's example. So if they don't lead in a godly way, then don't honor them. This is to those elders, those spiritual elders that lead in a godly way. It says they're to be counted of double honor, especially those who labor in word and in doctrine. Why double honor? It may be because those that teach the word are held to a stricter judgment. There's going to be a stricter judgment that comes to pastors, to teachers, because they stood up and they said, this is God's word, this is what God stands for, and if they misrepresented God or changed or perverted or tweaked God's word, then God's going to hold them accountable for that and the direction that they led people. And so God says if someone's laboring the word, they're laboring in doctrine, then honoring them. In verse 18, it says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wage. So the farmer has an ox. He wants to make sure that his ox is well cared for because the ox is going to plow the field. In the same way, a church cares for its pastors so the pastors can care for the people of God. Sometimes I get to be a part of church plants and these younger churches that are beginning and starting and they're trying to decide what to do with budgets. And from an outside perspective, I always encourage these churches to support their pastors because as they support their pastors, then their pastors are gonna be able to devote themselves to the word of God, to prayer, for caring for the people of God, then the church is going to be more healthy. And we're so thankful as a group of pastors here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. I feel so blessed to pastor here. And this is something that that you guys do well. And we're very humbled by it and very thankful uh, for it. In verse 19. So now's a little bit of uh, confession time. Can I? I'm just having fun tonight. I teach off of an iPad, if you guys never knew that. I still am saved. I still do love the scriptures Uh, but it it is an Apple product, and it just had a little glitch up here, and I had like a moment of panic. (laughs) But it came back. It's okay. So, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. Why do you think this might be? Because every once in a while, there's someone who doesn't appreciate an elder in a church doesn't appreciate a pastor in a church. Because pastors that are honoring God, that are ruling well, they're going to have to make some difficult decisions. They're going to have to deal with people on areas of sin. And so as a person gets angry at a pastor, it'd be very easy for him to bring accusation against that pastor. And you're not to receive that unless there's two or three witnesses. In verse 2, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. In context, this is speaking of pastors and elders as well. If a pastor or elder is sinning, he's to be rebuked so that all may fear. It's this idea if the pastor is being held accountable, then everyone will be held accountable. 
Some don't understand church discipline, especially when it comes in the area of pastors. So you have a pastor that sins. It does happen. It's in such a a grievous way that he needs to be removed for a time from being a pastor for him to have a period of restoration. He's betrayed trust. It's going to take time for him to rebuild trust. And inevitably, there'll be people inside of a church that will say, you're so unloving to that pastor that he was removed from pastoral ministry. We all sin. Why can't he just remain in the pastorate? And it's a misunderstanding of discipline. Love disciplines. And so it's a loving thing to bring godly correction. And even pastors need godly correction from time to time. I have found some people, though, don't want to be in a church where there is church discipline. Because if the pastor's disciplined, then they know they may be disciplined as well, and they'd rather not have that. So the moment that that happens, they migrate to another church that's not going to operate in church discipline, that's not going to hold the pastor accountable, and in essence, what they're communicating to the whole congregation is nobody's going to be held accountable here. At some point in your life as a believer, in your life of going to church, you're going to watch a church have to operate church discipline and maybe even upon a pastor. And remember this section of scripture that God encourages it so that all may come and walk in respect and knowing that there's accountability. Verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. God knows us and he knows that the tendency of a church would say, well, we'll let this elder or this pastor off the hook. He's so charismatic. He's such a good teacher. We like him so much. Or we're kind of afraid of him. If somebody stands up to him, we know he's got a temper. He's going to let it all fly out, so we're not going to hold him accountable. God knows our hearts, and he says, you can't do this with partiality or with prejudice because You're doing it before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the angels. That's quite an audience. We have to remember that we're to glorify God. The chapter ends in verse 22 and 23. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourselves pure. If a pastor is going to receive honor and be held to a higher standard, you want to make sure that he's ready for that. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Timothy was having health problems. This shows his physical weakness. Paul says, drink a little bit of wine. It's going to help your stomach. Verse 24, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men will follow later. Have you noticed this? Sometimes someone messes up and they sin, and it seems like God drops the hammer right away, and it's clearly evident. And someone else can be walking in rebellion to God, and it seems like there's no consequences. But the consequences are coming. God says the judgment will follow later. In verse 25, likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that otherwise cannot be hidden. And we want to be in verse 25. We don't want to be in a place where we're waiting for the correction of God. We're waiting for the judgment of God. We're in a place of serving the Lord and those good works are going to be clearly evident as well. This chapter that we just read, it demands actions. First, honor the family of God. When it says this is how you're to treat an older man, an older woman in the faith, a younger brother, a younger sister in the faith, that involves action. 
when it says honor your household, that involves actions, especially in this area of provision. We're honoring our household by providing for them. Honor widows, this involves action. If you know of widows inside of our church family, they're left alone. They don't have children and grandchildren to care for them. It's our privilege to make sure that they're cared for, that they're loved on. And then honor elders, honor spiritual leaders. Honoring God by honoring our attitudes towards others. I end with this. This took place in September of 2013. A young man was working at Dairy Queen. A blind customer came in and out of their pocket, a $20 bill fell and hit the floor. The customer behind the blind person reached down, picked up the $20 bill, put it in their pocket. The cash register, the 16-year-old boy, called him on it, said, you just stole 20 bucks from this blind man. It was a lady that stole the money. She then began to deny it. No, it didn't happen. And so the 16-year-old boy, he kicked her out of the Dairy Queen. He didn't call for the manager. He didn't, he's just like, you, you get out of here. And then he opened up his wallet, took out a $20 bill, and gave it to the blind customer. There were some other customers that watched this and very quickly got word to the managers at Dairy Queen, and he was honored. See, be a person of honor, and you will be honored, ultimately, by the Lord. And as we begin to look at illustrations like that, of that young man, we go, wow, honor is really missing in our culture and our society. So church, may we commit to being a people of honor. Let's stand together.